passage this morning uh, begins in Malachi chapter 2 and will end in Malachi chapter 3, but only part way. And so as you're turning to Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, uh, just let you know our pastor, if you're a visitor here, our pastor is on sabbatical. Uh, he should be back the second week of August, but he'll begin preaching again the third week of August because I would like to finish my series on Malachi. And I'll require at least one Sunday after he comes back for me to finish. And so I'm told him he'd have to wait another week. And surprisingly, he's like, okay, yeah, that's great. So he will have an extra week before uh, he begins preaching again. But for now, I have the great blessing and pleasure of bringing the word this morning. So let us turn to Malachi. This is starting in verse 17. And I will end in chapter 3, verse 5. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Dear Lord, as we come to you, I pray that we do not weary you, but abound in you. And I pray that we may abound in you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So, as some of you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of competition TV shows. Uh, I'm currently watching Ma- MasterChef and watching these home cooks try to compete against with each other to impress some of the best cooks in the world. But my favorite show out of all the competition shows is a show called Forged in Fire. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but it's a blacksmithing show. And it's pretty simple. They start with uh, usually a bar of steel. It may be round or rectangular. They throw it in a furnace and they immediately begin hammering on it. And they'll fold the steel upon itself and then heat it again in the furnace and hammer on it some more. And they keep working and they've given three hours and eventually what comes out is usually a beautiful knife. 
metal that they've taken from either a circular stock or rectangular. Sometimes they'll take it from ridiculous things. Like one time they used a pinball machine and that they had to take apart. One time they took apart uh, the, the shovel of a bulldozer just to make these nut blades. And after this metal's been heated and hammered and heated and hammered, they usually present something pretty amazing and pretty beautiful. When we look in this passage, Malachi wants to bring this message of hope. And he does. And it's a beautiful message of hope. However, I don't think it's the message of hope that the Israelites were quite looking for. As you'll see, and as we'll talk about, he talks about being refined, like the refiners of gold and silver. And so what we see in the main point of the passage this morning is, yes, Christ saves his people. Christ brings hope. But in doing so, he makes his people more like him. So, the passage this morning began with a very simple thing. Malachi looks at the Israelites and says, you are wearying the Lord. That is, basically, you're, you're tiring the Lord. You're coming after him like a toddler, continually asking why, and it gets exasperating. And the Israelites are like, what? Us? How are we the ones? Well, what are we doing? Malachi responds, because of the two questions you put before God. Two questions are this. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he, and he delights in them. And two, where is the God of justice? So the first one, which is honestly more of a saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. He delights in them. Let us, let's try to understand that argument. Basically, they're saying, how, how does God let evil people succeed? How are, how are the greedy ones the one who prosper? How are those who take advantage of the poor, how do they get ahead in life? How come famine doesn't hit their crop? Why are their livestock? Why is their livestock so strong? When a storm hits, their houses do not fall. They, they are well connected. Yet they despise your name, and Father, the way they advance in life, they, you seem to delight in them. I think that's a complaint we can relate to. It's something that we have all seen. The second one, where is the God of justice? Truly, if you say these things are sins, Lord, and that you despise them, then why are not people being punished for these sins? Now, this, this may not seem too foreign of an idea for us. I think that's a question we can relate. Why do those people get ahead? Where's the justice? Indeed, you look at Israel during that time, they were ruled by Persians. They were not their own nation. And the Persians, by worldly standards, were fairly benevolent. They allowed Israel to come back from Babylon. They allowed Israel to rebuild the temple. And they allowed Israel to rebuild Jerusalem. 
All of that seems pretty benevolent, but if you read through the book of Esther, the Persians were filled with debauchery. Yes, Israel could go home, but they still had to pay tribute. And even then, they, faced, they nearly faced eradication if it weren't for the heroics of Esther. Really, those two questions, the, the things that Malachi is saying is wearying the Lord, boils down to this. Where are you, Lord? Where are you, God? I think all of us have known somebody who has made it big, but you also know by any common measuring stick, uh, they're fairly wicked people. And most of us, if not all of us, know good and honest people that are struggling to make it and struggling to make ends meet. And these questions become even more poignant when you're the person with the complaint. When you feel like when an injustice has been done to you, when someone has gravely wronged you, yet they prosper. So yeah, I think the question arises quite often. Where are you, Lord? It's one that comes to our lips in our most frustrated moments. But here, the Lord does respond. He says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now this verse is very reminiscent of Isaiah, and said, Behold, a messenger will come in the wilderness, a passage in which Luke quotes in reference to John the Baptist who prepared the way for Jesus. Yeah, I, I know I've made a lot of connections, and I hope you followed the train there, but the point is, what Malachi is saying is, the Lord is coming. The Messiah will be here. He's foretelling the coming of the Savior. He is not forgotten his people. He's not leaving them alone. He has not abandoned them. No, like the Narnians and C.S. Lewis' beloved work who whisper to one another, Aslan is on the move. Malachi is saying, God is coming. The Lord will be here. Order and justice will be restored. Yet as you look at this prophecy, as you look at this message that Malachi brings, there's a, there's a bit of an ominous tone to it. There's this wonderful phrase, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Now, if you've been here the past couple of weeks, as we've gone through Malachi, you see that the Israelites have not necessarily been delighting in the covenant of the Lord. In the first chapter, we see that they uh, have failed in worship itself. It has been sort of dull and kind of going through the motions. There is no fear or honor of God in their worship. In the second chapter, the Lord is reminding them that, yes, you are a part of a covenant. I bring a covenant of life and peace to you. 
And so when Malachi says, the Lord of the covenant in whom you delight, there is a bit of tongue-in-cheek in this passage. And the Israelites' ears would have perked up and like, oh, that is not the message Malachi has been telling us. That cannot be good. See, the Israelites, in their complaints that are wearying the Lord, they're like an athlete that blames the teammates for the loss and never look to themselves. You start to realize Israel is only asking for justice for those outside of themselves. They're looking for justice for them. The evil people over there. bit of a problem. When we call for justice, when we ask for things to be made right with the Lord, our focus is is normally outward. Yet Malachi is saying, "Eh, you need to ask yourselves, where are you failing in the Lord's goodness? Malachi has brought two prophecies so far, both of them of rebuke, and now he says, you're wearying the Lord, but you're not delighting in Him. Where are you in this justice? Are you bringing this evil? So ask us this morning, where where are you failing in keeping the Lord's goodness? Where are we failing in upholding what the Lord values? And that's a tough question. And it's, but it's okay. It's a good question to ask because when we flee to Jesus, not only does He take away our sins, He does give us His righteousness. And in doing so, Christ begins this long process of molding us to be like Jesus. And it can be painful, it can be difficult, but it is good. See, Malachi from this, this prophecy begins this with this question. Who, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. I don't know if you're familiar with what a refiner's fire is. And as I've read about it, it, I've started to learn what it means. Basically, it means, of course, fire, which fire is always dangerous. It is always hot. But when we have a refiner's fire, that's, that's molten hot. That's when gold and silver, that's when metal becomes liquid. It flows. You can pour it out. But when they refine it, and they have this bowl and this intense heat, everything that is not gold drifts to the top. It's called dross. It's all the impurities. It's all the things that are not right with the gold. And the refiner is able to take away the impurities. Making gold essentially better gold, a finer gold. Now when we think about that and we begin applying it to our lives, that that becomes a scary thought. No one wants to be into the furnace to the point in which they are liquid. 
And this is why I referenced Forged in Fire in my introduction. Because when the Lord molds us and shapes us, it is an intense heat. But it is good. But the impurities are taken away. The parts of ourselves that would rebel against God, the parts that do not want to be like the Lord, the parts of us that would push back against the Lord, and those are removed. The dregs from our soul are lifted up and taken away. No, it is, it is not a pleasant process. But it is good. It is something to give us hope because in the end, we take something that is already precious, like the refiner. Gold is already precious. But after refinement, what is precious becomes all the more valuable. So yes, when the Lord comes, He brings hope. When Jesus came, He brought hope. He brought salvation. He, he rebuked the evil people of the world. But he also tells his people to be holy, for I am holy. So one thing when, to remember, when we call for justice, when we reach out to the Lord and we cry out for him, remember that the Lord will also respond by molding us to be more like him. As Malachi writes, he starts with the sons of Levi. Now, Levites, they were the priests of Israel. They followed after Aaron, who was brother of Moses. Aaron was the priest. He started the tribe of Levi. They, they followed after him. So they are the ones who guided others in worship. So they are the ones to make sure that sacrifices were worthy. They are the ones that taught the words to the Psalms and how to sing to the Lord. And they were the ones to lead others. That was their calling. That was their mission. So of course, when the Lord comes, He would refine His people first. Indeed, we see that when Jesus comes. As we read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus always seems to have the harshest words for the Pharisees. I mean, the Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day. So, of course, Jesus would have the harshest words for them. It's not that Jesus was against religion. I'm, I don't want to make that argument because he, he's not. As a matter of fact, he tells Peter he will build his church. But the Pharisees were, they were the ones who were supposed to know God's word. They were the ones who were supposed to look for Jesus. They were the ones who were supposed to proclaim his name. They were supposed to be the holy ones of God's people, the, the Levites, the ones to lead others in worship. But they neither cared for God nor his people. And they were concerned with how they were more, they were more concerned with how they were perceived as holy than actually being holy. Christ wants us to be like him, both inside and out. And here in Malachi, we see the same things. The Lord, 
when he comes to bring goodness and justice with the world, he's going to start with his people. Too often I think we think he's going to start out there, but he will start with God's people. Because it is God's people that he sends out into the world. He started with the apostles. He says, go, make disciples of men, baptizing them in the name of Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. See, we are, we are the church, and as such, we are the embassy of Christ to the world. And we are the great ambassadors. And if we're going to be the great ambassadors, if we are going to be the ones that go forth and take the light into the world, we're going to have to be like Jesus. We're going to be the ones who have to carry the good news of hope. If we're going to be the ones to tell others, like, you, you need Jesus. If we're going to tell our brothers and sisters, please repent. For the Lord is good. Well, we can, and we will, and we should. But we're also going to have to grow in our faith. And we're going to have to be refined like gold. So that those who do not know the Lord, those who have not tasted of Christ and see that He is good, those who have not heard the good news, those who cannot tell you which four books in the Bible are the Gospels, they can, they can hear this message. And they can see the effect it has on people's lives. They can see the great value. We have a common phrase here, actions speak louder than words. Uh, gospel ministry requires both actions and words. If we preach and teach and share the gospel but our actions are nowhere close to what we are preaching then why would anyone listen to that message and eventually eventually Malachi gets to that last answer see the last question where is the God of justice See, Christ does bring refinement. He does make his people right so that we may go out into the world, that we may be like him, be ready for the kingdom of heaven. But he will also bring justice. Notice in verse 5, I will be swift, I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely. Against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Jesus himself, he speaks against those who oppose them. He speaks against those who would rebel against him, those who would flee from his grace and mercy, he speaks against those who are stubborn and unrepentant. 
And we see that in his ministry. He tells the rich young ruler, all you have to do to have the kingdom of heaven is just sell everything and follow me. The man can't do it and he has to walk away. There the Lord is, makes the road smooth and clear and he cannot do it. Jesus preaches to thousands of people and thousands of people walk away saying, no, this is not for me. Yes, the Lord will bring justice. And this list is pretty comprehensive. It lists both private and public sins. And private being sorcerers and adulterers and those who would swear falsely using the Lord's name in vain, who would present one way and then act another. And the public sins of, of hiring the men and women and not paying them their wages, of pressing those without families. Now I'm not going through each and every sin because Stuart is, is coming back in August, and so I do want to be done in a timely fashion. But there's one that I think, especially here in America, that we have a tendency to skip over. And that is the sin of sorcery. Now, I think we have a tendency to skip over it because I don't believe we have a lot of sorcerers in a congregation. I don't, I don't think we have a lot of magic users um, one of our youth does have a pet snake, and it does weird me out a little bit. But she is very helpful when we have a snake in the backfield, and I need somebody to move it along. But if we limit sorcery to simply things like uh, voodoo and, and the like, to, to witchcraft, I, I think we're doing this, this sin a disservice. As one commentator noted, uh, Scripture, when it talks about sorcery, what it's talking about is attempting to manipulate the supernatural elements and supernatural powers simply to serve our own ends. When we broaden the definition to include that, I think our hearts should be a bit more convicted. For instance, if you go to church simply so your life would run a bit smoother, that seems to be trying to manipulate something that the Lord has blessed as supernatural and good just to benefit your life. If your prayers are a bit more self-centered, asking, simply asking the Lord, please make work easier for me. Please make these difficult problems simply go away. Please, Lord, take this difficult person out of my life so I don't have to be there for them. Is that not trying to manipulate God for your own ends? When our prayers are more glorifying to ourselves than the Lord who made heaven and earth, you're participating in some form of sorcery. You're not much different from Simon and Acts. Simon sees Philip and is like, your miracles are amazing. Help me learn how to do them. And Philip's like, you need to know Jesus. And Simon's like, well, teach me. And so Simon learns. And then Peter and another apostle come. 
And again, Simon sees even greater miracles. And he's like, I want to know how to do that. And at that point, he is roundly rebuked. Because he just wanted to glorify himself. He wanted to manipulate God to his own end. And so when our prayers, when our prayers center upon ourselves and to glorify ourselves and not ask the Lord to help us depend on him, then we are are under the sin of sorcery, which is a terrible work of the flesh. We need to be careful. When we ask for justice, where are our hearts? When we ask, where is the Lord? When we ask God, why do the evil people prosper? Are we doing so out of fear of the Lord? Out of honoring God? Is it truly a cry for justice, or are you asking, where is mine? You know, we come to the Lord, uh, we want to respect His Lordship and Majesty. We want to be His own people, and frankly, we need to pray and ask to be refined like gold. Let the dross come to the top, take away the impurities. Let us become more like Him. Yes, it is, it is easy to point outward. It is easy to look to others. It is much harder to look at Jesus and say, Lord, I have failed. Father, I am a sinner and I lack the holiness you desire. Refine me. Make me complete, lacking in nothing. And God will, and that is, that is our hope. To go through that fire and to become more like our Savior. And I'll finish with this. There's the last bit of this verse should grab our attention. It is a slap across the face or maybe a coach grabbing a player's helmet so he gets his full attention. He speaks judgment against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. Those words are powerful. And strong. If you're unfamiliar with Scripture, these, these words crop up when they describe whom God loves. Moses writes in Deuteronomy, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He, execute, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore. You were sojourners out of the land of Egypt. Now Deuteronomy itself is Moses' final instruction to the Israelites. It reads like one giant sermon. I don't know, maybe one day I'll get to preach Deuteronomy. Just, it's only 34 chapters, it's fine. Uh, but in his instruction. In his final instruction, he says, love the sojourner. God loves the orphans. He loves the widows. He takes care of the sojourners. 
God is for those who have no family. Be a family to them. And this is not just an Old Testament thing. James echoes this in the New Testament. James writes, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. It's interesting, the various roles that the church has. Yes, we are an embassy, but as Young Life often states, they're the ambulance and the church is the hospital. We are in the place that should be welcome, that should welcome the family less. We are in the place that offers community to the broken and those who despair, those who are wounded. We are, we are to be a light into the world, a beacon of hope. And the only way to be that beacon is to be refined. The only way to show the hope that we have as Christ is to become more like Jesus. So we can show others who are crying out for love and hope, we can show them the Lord our Savior. We have all cried out for justice. We, we have felt the pains of sin of this world. We felt the pain of sin in our own lives. We have seen the hurt our own sin has caused other, and we have seen the goodness and redemption of Jesus. Because Christ is with his people. And not only is he with his people, he says, you will become like me. And that is how he brings hope. So let us have hope in Christ. Let us move toward him each and every day. Let us pray the hard prayer saying, Lord, show me the dross. Show me my sinful self that I may repent and I may become like you. That I may delight and the covenant that you made me, that I may truly worship and delight in you, in doing so, taking this light and hope and goodness to others. Because that is our call as followers of Jesus, to walk in his ways and to welcome others. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, show us our sins. Not just show us our sins, Lord. We ask that we have repentance. That we are able to turn from our sins and turn toward you. Lord, I ask that we may depend on you more. That we rely not on our own selves, but your amazing grace. Your amazing love. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.